crowds organized, mobilized, yeah, baby, yeah. La Salam, welcome to Politics in Command, a Marxist-Leninist-Maoist podcast focusing on anti-revisionist politics. Mao Zedong's classic essay, On Practice, is a must-read for any Marxist, and many have read it. Unfortunately, the key points of the essay often are not fully understood in the U.S., let alone put into practice within many Maoist circles. And another unfortunate reality is that most podcasts only read an audio version of the essay, not diving deep into the key points within the text. We hope to change that and provide a thorough analysis and elaborate on the key points of this essay. As Marxists, we should always understand the context in which any text is written, where any correct ideas come from. To paraphrase Mao, Ideas do not fall from the sky, they come from social practice and from it alone. In other words, learning about the origin of correct ideas is just as important as applying them correctly to our particular conditions. And applying these ideas correctly has the capability to change our social reality. This is the power of correct ideas. Now, the 11th thesis of Karl Marx's philosophical notes highlights this very crucial point. He says, Philosophers have hitherto only interpreted the world in various ways. The point is to change it. Mao's essay on practice is so crucial to understand and so theoretically dense, despite the main thrust being clear and straightforward, that it is impossible to cover the entire text in only one podcast episode. So, we have a short mini-series to elaborate on the key points of the essay. We hope that this mini-series serves to help guide students of Marxism in understanding the key points of the text as well as the struggle in which it was created. Some of the key points that we will elaborate on in this mini-series are dogmatism and our duty to combat it, the basics of the Marxist theory of knowledge, and the dialectical relationship between theory and practice. And I'll end this intro with a quote by Karl Marx, who said, There is no royal road to science, and only those who do not dread the fatiguing climb of its steep paths have a chance of gaining its luminous summits. Enjoy the show. My name is Thomas. I'm a member of the Maoist Communist Union. We're a pre-party organization here in the United States with chapters in a number of different cities across the country. People may be familiar with some of our work, and, and if not, you can check out our website or the page uh, with a number of our documents on Band Thought, which I think will be linked in the episode description. Uh, we organize primarily amongst the proletariat and amongst the industrial proletariat in particular with a focus on the kind of struggles of organized labor, union work, uh, both within the existing unions, uh, which are often reactionary. So we have to employ strategies appropriate to, to that, especially drawing on the lessons learned from the experience of the Communist Party USA in the 20s and 30s. And we have some documents on this, including discussing the topic of boring from within reactionary unions and so on. 
and also organizing amongst the unorganized workers to form unions to build up the the class struggle and so on and again if people are interested in learning more about what we've done there definitely check out our website we have some some documents explaining some of our basic orientation there in addition to the day-to-day -day organizing and the economic and political struggles it's been essential for us to develop uh internally uh through a lot of ideological struggle and theoretical work even within our own ranks discussions and debates on the topics of dual unionism of protracted people's war of the lessons of the cultural revolution and also in documents we've published like discussing and debating critiquing gonzaloism explaining why we think ppw is not a universal strategy for revolution all of this has been very key for our own development and that's part of the reason i'm excited to talk with you today about on practice this text in particular is a treasure trove of dialectical materialism there's so much in it and it's been really helpful for us to to really do deep dive and in, in reading this really try to get to the heart of it and not just have a surface level reading and historically that's been incredibly important you know during the uh establishment of Daqing, the oil fields in china it before they set up any housing even and later any sort of plan for how the oil fields would be developed all the comrades involved in this effort sat down together and read on practice and on contradiction just to ground them uh theoretically to guide their practical activity and i think that just shows the the importance and significance of this text especially in retrospect looking at what a big success Daqing was it became the model for industry in the cultural revolution in china so you know with all that being said uh, really excited to dive into this topic today yeah, we really appreciate you getting on the show and, and diving deep into this topic. I think this is a go-to classic read for people who are interested in MLM, but really Marxists in general. So with that said, let's let's get into this text. It's On Practice by Mao. Could you provide a little bit of a background of this text? So this text, although probably most people have uh, come across it as an article, was actually originally delivered as a speech in Yan'an by Mao uh, in the wake of the Long March. And Mao kind of was helped in drafting this by Ai Cixi, who was one of the prominent philosophers in the Chinese Communist Party. And unfortunately, many of his works have never been translated into English, but he continued to play a key role um, in the party through the Cultural Revolution. He was instrumental, for example, in the debate over the one dividing into two uh, against the revisionists in the beginning of the Cultural Revolution. And I won't go so deep on that uh, in him, but I just emphasize that he's kind of a, an important ghost co-author in, in these texts and really worked closely with Mao on philosophy on this text and on a contradiction. Let me ask, why do you think he, I've never had a copy of this text mention his name before? Yeah, I'm not sure why he's not mentioned. I mean, he didn't write it. Mao wrote it, but he was involved in, in working on it with Mao and discussing and debating it. Um, but I'm not really sure why he was not is not more well known for the role he played. I think it's partially just because he's not known in the English speaking world because most of his works are never translated into English. But you know, he had a, a, a book on dialectical materialism that he wrote to explain it to to comrades, and that was kind of a standard educational material in revolutionary China. So he was very well known there, and his role in helping the, to create this uh, these texts wasn't a secret. You know, people knew that he was working with Mao on on philosophy. More broadly, you know, on practice and on contradiction were part of an effort by Mao and others in the Chinese Communist Party to overcome the vestiges of dogmatism that remained uh, in the CCP 
in the wake of the Long March. And of course, you know, no party can ever be totally purged of dogmatism, empiricism, other deviations. They're a reflection of the class struggle internal to the party or internal to even, you know, pre-party organization, part of the two-line struggle. But nonetheless, there's a need to take up that struggle and to wage it and to one degree or another overcome dogmatism. And um, in China, dogmatism had been a problem in the party for a long time, as most Maoists probably know. You know, the focus on the strategy of urban insurrection, for example, without concretely investigating the conditions in China, was a big problem. This focus on urban insurrection, you know, led to the defeat in the 1927 revolution. But even after that revolution was defeated, and Mao and Judah and others showed the way forward for the strategy of protracted people's war with their efforts in Qinggangshan, uh, and you can read about that in texts like, why is it the red political power can exist in China? Um, the party as a whole did not come around to seeing the basis for PPW right away. And so there was this whole struggle against Li Li San and Wang Ming and other leaders of the party uh, that promoted and confused aspects of the of you know, just how the party needed to do urban work. And this is not to say with the strategy of protracted people's war and more broadly with taking seriously the need to investigate the particularity of Chinese conditions that the party should have abandoned all urban work. But there's a question of given the prevailing conditions in China, what was the appropriate um, approach to urban work, especially in the wake of the counter-revolution in 27? Um, and for example, Li Li San and Wang Ming at different times when they were the leadership of the party before the Long March, they argued for very overt urban work. At one point, arguing based on the Comintern's analysis that uh, work had to shift to the cities again from the countryside after a couple of years of kind of starting guerrilla warfare and developing it. Um, and this led to more setbacks and defeats. And even after the party had established a fairly sizable base area in the uh, Jiangxi Fujian Soviet, uh, they were once again defeated by dogmatism. And most listeners may know about the, the reasons for the Long March, you know, that during Chiang Kai-shek's fifth extermination campaign, the party incorrectly and dogmatically adopted an approach of trying to abandon the strategies and of mobile warfare and instead fight a kind of positional war against a vastly superior military force. And this led to, obviously, a significant military defeat, which forced the party to undertake the Long March. Um, and it was only during the Long March that the dogmatist line was eventually defeated uh, in the Sunni conference, and Mao's line really went up. And so this text on practice comes after all that. And naively, one could think, okay, well, they defeated the dogmatist leadership, a correct revolutionary line went out, they were pursuing the correct strategy appropriate for China's particular conditions, that of protracted people's war, which was at that point still in the process of development. So... What's the focus on dogmatism? But I think, you know, that's too simple of a view because even when an incorrect line is defeated, it doesn't mean that it's totally overcome and the ideas surrounding it don't remain and the class tendencies and, and forces in society which give rise to it. Uh, so those still existed and those needed to be overcome. And that's a big reason for on practice and, and likewise on contradiction. So you mentioned some issues with the common turn. And I think uh, that also with understanding the history of the Comintern, there's a lot of simplification. People just uphold it. But the more one learns about the Comintern and really the internationals in general, 
we'll learn that there's actually a lot of problems concerning these formations. But in particular, with this situation, with overcoming dogmatism in the particular conditions of the Chinese Communist Party, uh, could you talk a little bit about the role of the Comintern in this struggle against dogmatism? Yeah, you know, first, for those who don't know, the Comintern is, is the third communist international, which was founded in the wake of the victory of the October Revolution. And um, in the wake of the degeneration of the second international and parties like the social democratic party of germany and others that during the first world war rallied to support their their own in quotes ruling class uh during the war and so lenin and other communists around the world really the bolshevik party was the leading force in this formed the third international the common turn and i think that overall we can see especially early on the common turn played an immensely positive role uh, helping to found, for example, the Chinese Communist Party, helping here in the United States, the two like fractions that split off from the Socialist Party to unify into one party, to break from some of their immature political views, and so on. But nonetheless, you know, as you pointed out, we can't have a uh, like look at the common turn with rosy glasses. We have to see that, that this common turn was self-divided by class struggle, and also that there was, you know, more broadly, of course, mistakes made. And in China, in particular, the Comintern, while playing initially positive role, also gave the party some bad advice. Unintentionally, but because of the way it approached the class struggles in China, did promote dogmatism uh, in the Chinese party. And so the Chinese Communist Party, Mao and others really, had to struggle against the Comintern and its backwards advice at times. Now, this is not to say that the common turn gave all bad advice, um, but I think, you know, we also should be square, as I said earlier, about some of the mistakes that were made. And I can understand the impulse, the correct impulse, I think, to defend Stalin and the common turn against the attacks of, you know, revisionists and anti-communists and so on, who just try to paint it as all bad. But I think we shouldn't then fall into a naive approach that says it was all good. So, you know, the common turn in the Chinese Communist Party, the struggle between them was, was ultimately non-antagonistic in nature. You know, the common turn gave some bad advice, some dogmatic advice. Um, but Mao, you know, and others opposed that and, and it didn't ever come to a, a split or an outright uh, break. But leaders like Wang Ming and Li Li San, there's a reason, you know, they were called the 28 and a half Bolsheviks. Uh, the dogmatists were called that. They're also known as that. It's mentioned in the beginning of On Practice and like the contextual notes as well as On Contradiction. They were also known as Stalin's China section because these were leaders that the Comintern had trained in Moscow and then sent to China to help lead the revolution. And, you know, we can see the positive results of a lot of the Comintern's training and say a leader here in the United States like Harry Haywood, who if you read Black Bolshevik, he obviously learned a tremendous amount about Marxism and about the U.S. situation. Uh, in the training he got in Moscow. But it wasn't as simple as that some people, even while getting overall good training, adopted some dogmatic approaches or confused ideas. Some came away despite having good training with bad ideas and dogmatic ideas. And so, uh, of course, dogmatism being only one form of possible error that can arise. But based on kind of a mechanical applications of the lessons of Marxism to the Chinese situation, these dogmatists really confused and led the Chinese revolution astray at times. Uh, and this took various forms, uh, but especially the focus on the urban work that I already mentioned, that wasn't just coming from 
Wang Ming and Li Lisan. It was coming from Stalin and the leadership, the uh, executive committee of the Communist International itself. And I'll explain a little bit more about that in a second. But one aspect of the common turn I want to mention before getting into that is that the common turn aspired to be a party of parties, uh, a kind of body in which all parties were part of, all communist parties, and under which they were subject to democratic centralists. Democratic centralism, democratic centralist rule and command. Um, and I think at a certain stage of development in the international communist movement, say where there's socialism in a bunch of countries and a customs union between them and the kind of borders are open between them, it can make sense to have something like that. The different parties of the world beginning to go through the process of fusing into one party. But I think Mao and others were right in retrospect in noting that this was a mistake to have democratic centralism in the common term. And this is a view that's held, say, by CPI Maoists today, that it was premature to impose democratic centralism. And that it led to a lot of confusion because, you know, it's not possible to say from Moscow how to deal with all the particularities of Chinese society. Um, and that's why Mao is coming up with these, these phrases like opposed book worship and no investigation, no right to speak. Because based on the general principles of Marxism alone, it was not possible to guide the Chinese revolution forward. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, the common turn, its form of democratic centralism, it, it led to some of these problems, or at least reinforced them. And just to, to read a little quote from the common turn of the role of it, of DC, it's, they said, quote, the leading body of the communist international during the period between Congresses is the executive committee of the communist international, the ECCI elected by the delegates of the World Congress. The decisions of the ECCI are binding for all parties belonging to the common turn and must promptly be carried out. So technically, by rejecting these approaches that the common turn had decided on, Mao and others were breaking democratic centralism in the common turn. But it was a democratic centralism that didn't make sense. And um, for example, the uh, one Soviet advisor who was there as a representative of the Comintern, who was not a member of the leadership of the Communist Party uh, during the period of the Long March, but also before, was Otto Braun. Uh, and he was instrumental in winning over the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party to the line of positional warfare in the Jiangxi Fujian Soviet against Chiang Kai-shek's fifth extermination campaign. And it was really after seeing how disastrous this advice was that the leadership of the party consolidated to say, okay, if the common turn gives us good advice, we'll take it. But if they give us bad advice, we can't follow it, you know, because this democratic centralism doesn't make sense. The part, the delegates from the common turn often don't quite understand the situation. They're not trying to sabotage us, but they just don't know how to advance the revolution given the particularities here. And I think that all has fairly profound implications for us today. And, um, just to say one more thing about this, um, you know, there's a great document where Joe and Lai was speaking to uh, Hoja and others from the Albanian uh, party in the 60s. It's available on Band Thought. Maybe we can link it in the episode description or something. Um, but, you know, he's emphasizing to the Albanian delegation the need to have something of a dialectical analysis of the, the errors that, that Stalin made. Um, and trying to say, you know, of course, we oppose Khrushchev and his attempt to knock Stalin down with one blow, but there were real mistakes. And, and those are mistakes at times, errors in principle. 
actually that Stalin made in guiding the international communist movement and leading the Comintern and so on. Um, and he emphasizes in this document that really the so-called leftists, but he his leftists in quotes, meaning like the left deviationist group with Wang Ming, um, they uh, they really were following Stalin's line at that period. And it was some of Stalin's mistakes that uh, um, the Comintern was basically following, carrying out, and these dogmatists in China. And that's an important perspective because just like we shouldn't, you know, uh, have a naive view towards the Comintern, we also shouldn't have a naive view to Stalin. I mean, Mao's evaluation of 70-30 is kind of a rough, you know, expression. But that means that for every two things Stalin did right, roughly, he did one thing wrong or a little bit less. And Stalin played an incredibly important and overall positive role in the international communist movement for you know, three, four decades. But inevitably, in that period, he did a lot of good things. And therefore, based on that evaluation, he also made a number of mistakes. And... Just to say this well, whole real quick, question. just just for people who don't know, the seventy thirty analysis is saying that Stalin uh, did seventy percent correct uh, in handling situations and was thirty percent wrong. Uh, very simple idea, but uh, he's expanding on this right now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thanks, thanks for clarifying that. Yeah, and seventy percent right, thirty percent wrong. Again, it's a rough analysis, kind of like a shorthand expression. But the point is to say, you know, for us Maoists today, it's very important we study this stuff and look squarely at the successes and, of course, uphold the successes, but also look clear-eyed at the mistakes. We're not afraid of that, that sort of criticism. And we should be able to make that criticism of important communist leaders without falling into the kind of naive anti-communist lies and, and, and propaganda. Um, and actually, to be able to clarify the strengths and weaknesses of our historic leaders to the masses in, in the U.S. and elsewhere, we have to be able to talk about their mistakes openly because, you know, there's some knowledge of some of the mistakes. And if we don't, if we just deny that they exist, it's all too easy for the anti-communists to smear us. Um, so that, that's a bit of an aside. Um, but just to, to spell it a little bit more, and hopefully it's clarifying for listeners, about some of the role in the common turn and Stalin in promoting this dogmatism, despite the positive role that they did play through many of the uh, the struggles in China. Yeah, the, I appreciate that. That was, it's just a lot that you said that I think is very important and rarely even talked about is, you know, especially this democratic centralist aspect and the issues with it in particular to the Chinese revolution. That is something that should be talked about even more addressed um, like you said, we need to be square about these things. If Maoism is a science, we got to understand it concretely, right? So issues with the common turn uh, and, and democratic centralism and how Mao fought back against it and others, super important topic. And it does lay down some of the um, the context in which this piece was written. But I also want to note that there, there seems to be there was a basis for dogmatism in the larger Chinese society as a whole. And it wasn't just this external thing. Uh, there's a quote I want to read from the text, and it says, quote, The saying, without stepping outside his gate, the scholar knows all the wide world's affairs, was mere empty talk in past times when technology was undeveloped. Even though the saying can be valid in the present stage of developed technology, the people with real personal knowledge are those engaged in practice 
the wide world over. And it is only when these people have come to know through their practice and when their knowledge has reached him through writing and technical media that the scholar can indirectly know all the wide world's affairs, end quotes. Can you talk a little bit about this? The point you made about the internal basis of dogmatism in Chinese society is essential because if the common turn, you know, through its own mistakes, tried to promote uh, dogmatism, even unintentionally in China, but there was no internal basis for it, it would have found no, re you know, in every society to one degree or another, there's a basis for dogmatism. But what Mao's pointing out here, this quote from On Practice, is the long-standing basis for dogmatism in Chinese society, which is really founded on a particular type of intellectual culture that existed in part because of the tradition of Confucianism and the imperial examination system, which was relatively continuous one dynasty to the next in China for you know several thousand years at that point, well, thousand and a number of hundred years. And if people have read Red Star Over China, for example, they may recall that Mao's father wanted him to become a lawyer, a classically trained scholar, though, not a lawyer who would argue on the basis of, you know, like natural law, property law, etc., but a lawyer who would argue using the Confucian Analects to win his father's uh, court cases. And by that time, Mao's father had moved up to being a rich peasant, and so was involved in a number of disputes over trade and property and so on. But that gives you a sense of, of how the, the Analects and, you know, the Confucian texts functioned in Chinese society. And, you know, when the Japanese were looking to in, invade China, there was a belief amongst some sections of the Japanese ruling class that knowledge of the Analects uh, and Confucian scholarship would be enough to help them justify their rule. Of course, that wasn't true, but it gives you a sense of just how prominent this tradition of scholarship was in Chinese society. And it, it's not all negative, although people may be familiar with some of the most negative aspects of it, the intellectual culture, for example, where the scholars would refuse to do any manual labor, where they would even grow their fingernails out to show how they hadn't done manual labor. And as Mao notes here, how they would, uh, you know, basically believe that without even leaving the door, they could know the whole world, which of course is absurd. But there also was a progressive tradition, intellectual tradition in China, even amongst some of these scholars who often would help to lead various rebellions against uh, unjust state of affairs and so on. So I don't want to just dismiss that tradition wholesale, but it's important to note aspects of that tradition uh, of the you know tradition of Chinese scholarship and in particular the imperial examination system based on Confucianism really did create a firm basis in uh, or for dogmatism in Chinese society. And this is uh, Again, not unique to China, but there's unique particularities to how it played out and therefore how it had to be fought in the Chinese Communist Party. And for those of us in the US, there's a lot to learn from this because in every given culture and every society, there's going to be different intellectual traditions and trends. In the US, as we'll talk about a little bit further on, uh, or maybe relatively soon, there's a, a longstanding tradition of things like pragmatism and empiricism. So we've discussed the problems of dogmatism in the Comintern, in relation to the Chinese Revolution, also dogmatism in larger Chinese society. But what about dogmatism in U.S. society today, even specifically within so-called U.S. Marxist circles? I think it'd be important to address the problem of dogmatism in the U.S. today. 
Absolutely. And first, you know, I'll say the most ironic thing is I've come across over the years a number of extremely dogmatic readings of on practice in the US, um, where people just look at the most surface level of it and say, okay, this is it. You know, you move from one stage of knowledge to the next and practice and spirals, got it. And, and you know, part of the hope of doing this episode is to break from that sort of dogmatism, to dive into some examples and to get beyond that. Um, but beyond just the reading of on practice, one big source of dogmatism in the United States today is the kind of internet political scene. Uh, and I guess there's many scenes online, but this kind of uh, quick hit, quip response type of stuff, surface level reading, people learning about Marxism from a TikTok video or Instagram post. Now, of course, there's something of a divided character here, which is that people do really get into Marxism from the internet stuff. That's not all bad. That can be a good starting point. But if people never get beyond that, they kind of become our modern day version of these Chinese scholars who imagine that just from you know, their phone, they're able to understand the whole society, which is far from the truth. And um, it leads to all sorts of the weird takes I think we've seen over the last uh, number of years in this country. And these are not by any means confined to MLM circles, um, but are, you know, a broader standing problem in the US society, especially at a point where we have a, you know, no significant revolutionary movement to speak of, and the working class movement is really just beginning to revive in this country. So it's very easy to fall into a very oversimplified understanding of MLM or Marxism more broadly, and to kind of have fantasies about how that will play out here in the United States. Yeah, real quick, let me just say, I think what you just said is so important in relation to the whole purpose of this podcast, trying to push anti-revisionist politics, because right now the revisionist forces are such a dominant force. And I think this whole dogmatism aspect, surface level understanding of Marxism, think about all the so-called Marxist uh media influencers out there from the tiktokers to youtube channels to even other podcasts uh that are really yeah if you think about it and go like maybe at by the end of this episode and this discussion people can go back and look at how other people have talked about on practice and how simplified their explanation and description of the points here are and all of this kind of leads into why i think it explains it's a good basis of explaining why revisionist forces are the dominant internet Marxist influencers tied with no, having no actual revolutionary practice on the ground and movement on the ground. So just want to hash that point on, but yeah, please continue. Yeah. Well, I'll just say on that point, it's not a surprise that, um, you know, in a period of real decadence and reaction when there's a very, you know, weak, working class movement just beginning to revive here in the United States, that the bourgeois forces who claim the mantle of Marxism predominate in terms of popularity. It's in fact inevitable given the current constellation of class forces in this conjuncture, but it will change and it already is changing. Um, and I'll say the the kind of malleability of a lot of revisionist politics is such that they can eclectically incorporate elements of what Mao wrote. Of course, not really dealing with the heart of it, whether it be not really diving into on practice so deeply, or especially not engaging with Mao's writings about revisionism. Um, but, you know, they, they try to mix a little bit in as a way to lure people in. Um, 
But yeah, let me speak to some of the other aspects uh, or other contributing factors to the dogmatism that we see prevailing in the U.S. left today. Um, I think that actually the U.S. school system has, you know, obviously failed the masses of people in this country broadly, but has really promoted dogmatism. I mean, for example, increasingly, especially since Bush's no child left behind policy, the standard practice in United States school systems uh, or school, yeah, school systems is to teach two standardized testing based off multiple choice. You know, oh, here's a problem. Pick your four answers. It, it encourages people to to not really think so critically and just say, okay, what's the solution? We need protracted people's work. What's the solution? We need this. We need that. And, you know, very, very simplified uh, abstractions, you know, and of course, you know, I don't think we need protracted people's war in an imperialist country, but we need revolution. But um, that's just the beginning of an answer, not the end. And if we kind of fall into this form of formulaic thinking, which is widespread in the U.S., it becomes harder to see the complex problems in front of us that are, we have to grapple with in order to revive the revolutionary movement in this country. And then, therefore, it's very easy when, of course, dogmatic sloganeering doesn't lead to any change to fall into nihilism. But generally, before that point, people often have this very simplified view, even those who come to Maoism, that, you know, MLM plus the masses equals revolution. All we need to do is just bring the Maoist theory out there to the masses and they'll take it up. Uh, and of course, what people are leaving aside is the essential step of really taking Maoism first, really grappling with it deeply, which is often avoided, but second, applying it and adapting it to our particular circumstances, just like Mao and the Chinese Communist Party did in China, just like Lenin and the Bolsheviks did in Russia, and actually just like Marx and Engels did in their own time. Like if you read Marx and Engels, a lot of their writing, say the manifesto, is written in the contemporary language of the, the Rhineland in Germany. Uh, you know, aimed at their particular audience, which they understood fairly well, where they had a real grappling uh, and real reckoning with the society, what was going on. Um, and unless we do that, we're just falling into dogmatism, we're thinking that just by repeating the general lessons of Maoism, that we just tell those to the masses and they get it. But reality is not so simple. And this is tied to, as I've already mentioned, but um, just this lack of revolutionary movement in the U.S. So people often uncritically ape various forms uh, from the past, revolutionary forms, but which are not applicable to our present um, situation. And I think related to the multiple choice stuff, people are kind of looking for some sort of magic bullet or secret formula that will just kind of ignite revolutionary struggles in this country. Um, but where we're in a non-revolutionary situation right now in the United States and where we likely will be for some time, uh, it's important that we take stock of that and understand that, for example, the slogans and approaches to organizing the masses that were feasible in China in the 1920s when the country was seething with rebellion against both feudalism and imperialist domination are just not going to be applicable without some significant alteration to our present context in a very powerful imperialist country, which is in a state of decline, but in which things are still relatively stable. Let me let me respond to that real quick. So I think uh, you might my from my experience, I think the reason the the dominant so called Marxist forces in this country identify as Marxist Leninists uh, really 
just use that as some type of a description because they're reading texts from the 60s and 70s. They're reading texts from the 20s and 30s. And all of the people that they're reading in these Marxist struggles are calling themselves Marxist-Leninists. But my experience has been when I engage with these people and I ask them basic questions about what it means to be a Marxist-Leninist, how Marxism developed into Leninism, uh, and, and even differences since the 70s to now, it, there's very empty responses. They have no clue about those divisions, the particularities. And so to, to me, they're just calling themselves Marxist-Leninist because, well, that's what all the writings I read say. And that's not a reason to take up the mantle of Marxism. As you said, we need to have people who are critically thinking about this and actually understand what that what that uh, tendency, political tendency, actually means beyond just saying that you're a Marxist-Leninist and that you want revolution and that you hate capitalism. Um, so I, that's a little bit of some of my experience with dealing with a lot of these uh, people who are interested in Marxism, but they're held up by this surface level investigation of, of the past struggles. Yeah, that's a great point. And um, it's important to note that because these issues are, are by no means unique to the MLM movement in this country. Uh, and sometimes they're much more acutely uh, expressed even amongst the so-called Marxist-Leninist circles. You know, I think you're right to say they don't even really often know what Marxism-Leninism is. If they did, then they would see that the basic principles of Marxism-Leninism require a grappling with the, with the class struggles in the 60s and 70s and since then, and therefore inevitably lead to Maoism. So uh, I generally don't even give them the... Uh, credit of calling the Marxist Leninists, you know, but I think yeah. that they're not. Exactly. And then everything that's happened since the 70s, I mean, a lot of people don't even know about RIM, the Revolutionary Internationalist Movement. They they don't know what's going on in India right now. They don't know what happened in Nepal. Like these are pretty big struggles that's happened since the 70s that we should be investigating and studying. And they're just completely unaware of that. They also are ignorant of what Marx wrote, generally. And they also are ignorant of what Lenin wrote and what Stalin wrote, and the lessons of the common turn. And, and unfortunately, it would be great to say this is unique to revisionist groups and, and organizations, individuals, but it's not. It's a widespread malaise right now where people often, even in MLM circles, and I mean real MLM circles, who are very excited and eager to learn about the kind of, about MLM, quickly move through stuff that really they should take a lot more time with. You know, these lessons from Marx's writings, for example, are incredibly rich. The lessons from Lenin, from the Comintern, there's so much there. And, uh, you know, our movement right now, the international communist movement, is really suffering uh, from a lack of clarity on some of these lessons that have been hashed out. So I would encourage, you know, all listeners who are anti-revisionists, since this is an, an anti-revisionist podcast, to really take the time to look into some of this stuff in the common turn, evaluate its successes and failures, evaluate what it, whether it was right about and what it was wrong about. And especially for Maoists in the U.S., to evaluate the history, for example, of the Communist Party USA and, and um, the RCP. And don't settle for quick hit kind of one-off summaries of it. Like really try to dive into it deeply and engage critically with some of the more recent uh, evaluations that have been put out there, even if they are you know somewhat flawed in different ways. Last point. Okay, this is because it's just so important. This is putting it into practice. You know, when I'm sitting here criticizing these revisionists, I don't want to sit there and be like, oh, you know, they're not in the same room, room as me. And I'm just criticizing them because I can get away with it on this podcast. I'm also criticizing my old self who first got into Marxism. 
Um, but I think the difference is that I think I continually struggled internally and came to terms with my own self of being like, well, I, I actually don't know too much about this particular struggle. I don't know what this or that actually means. And I need to further study these things. And as we further study these things and, you know, at least study things with, as they say in the science world, an open mind, but not so open that your brain falls out. <laughs> um, or, you know, you just take in everything and there's no filter to push out the incorrect ideas, but you want to continue, continually develop on the correct ideas. And that's an internal process that we're going to have to continually struggle on. Some people aren't willing to fight that fight. Some people are. And I think the people who are, you always come out on the better end. You become more knowledgeable. You have more practice. You develop politically and theoretically. And these, this is the, the more advanced people that we want to really focus on. And that's what we're focusing on here in uh, the podcast. People who are really asking these deep theoretical questions about this historical struggles and so on and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. I like that saying, your mind open, but not so open that your brain falls out. <laughs> yeah, that's a famous saying in this bourgeois science world, but I think there's a there's a validity to it. Absolutely. So look, just one last thing on dogmatism here in the US. I think we need to see beyond internet politics and standardized testing that there is this broad promotion of, of subjective idealism, of, of various forms of magical thinking, where reality should be no impediment to you realizing your dreams, for example, as it's often put in like self-help books and by Instagram influencers. But of course, reality is an impediment to realizing our dreams if our dreams are not in accordance with reality. Um, and I mentioned this just because, you know, it, it's a big thing out there. And, and even though as Maoists, we obviously reject that, it can influence us to one degree or another. And there's a difference between revolutionary optimism and naive optimism. Even if naive optimism is cloaked in revolutionary slogans and backed up by a bit of revolutionary theory. And it would be nice to think that the self-help stuff is just confined to, you know, petty bourgeois circles and like tech bros and stuff like that. But it's not, you know, in our experience organizing in different workplaces and, and my own experience, I've seen, um, you know, many working class people read books like The Power of Now. And are into self-help people and motivational speakers who are kind of various forms of snake oil salesmen. And we were talking a little bit about the long-term basis of dogmatism in Chinese society. Well, if people have read books like by Mark Twain, for example, they'll have a sense of the long-standing negative tradition in the United States of people being hoodwinked by carpetbaggers and snake oil salesmen and so on. Um, and even the development of various religions in the United States, like Mormonism, kind of our reflection of this, uh, of these kind of ideas of kind of uh, magical solutions to all the problems that we face today. And those that form of dogmatism is deeply rooted in American society. It's something we need to struggle against. And even if we have clarity on it, it's something often that has deeper roots in our own ranks, amongst the working class, amongst the masses more broadly. So we have to really take stock of that, just like Mao and the Chinese Communist Party took stock of the various particularities in Chinese culture, so as to unite with the positive traditions and oppose the negative ones. Yeah, so, okay, we're very important points, I think, uh, understanding dogmatism and how it plays out in U.S. society particularly is incredibly important. I think there is a notion to just... Uh, a paint a broad brush of what dogmatism is and not really understand all that. 
So with all that said, um, should we dive into some of the basics here? Yeah, let's go for it. This has been a long introduction to the text, which hopefully is helpful and gets people really thinking about how to apply it. But, uh, you know, it's time to jump into it. I, I agree. So maybe just to give the listeners a little bit of an idea of how I plan to, to go through this and how we talked about it. Um, we'll start with just going through the basics of the dialectical materialist circuit of knowledge. Uh, people are probably familiar with this, but the basic idea is that um, all knowledge is ultimately grounded in practice. There are no ideas that are innate in the mind and that our knowledge is a reflection of practice. We learn through practice. So just to put it simply, Mao talks about it in a few simple steps, and we'll talk in depth about each of these steps a little bit later on, but just to give people a sense, uh, and if people have read the text, they, they no doubt are aware of these. Mao says, we start with perceptual knowledge, then we move from perceptual knowledge to rational knowledge via a leap, via really thinking, summing things up, trying to understand the internal relations between things. And then once we've come to rational knowledge, that is a relatively correct understanding of the essence of a thing or of a whole series of things, we test our theory about that rational knowledge and practice. We see what's right, what's wrong, what works, what doesn't work. And then we sum up the results of that practice and adjust our theory and go through this cycle over and over and over again. And that's really the basics of the text. And, and unfortunately, that's where most people stop. And that means that each aspect of the process, they don't understand fully, and therefore they certainly don't understand the whole thing. Our hope in this kind of discussion, and my hope is we can really dive into some of these things, these overlooked points about how human knowledge really develops, because Mao is quite precise and quite clear, and this text is a real treasure trove of information and, and dialectical materialism. Um, and these points are, are really fundamental to Marxism. So we'll get into some of the nitty gritty, I think, in this first discussion of just how the dialectical materialist circuit of knowledge works. And then I think we talked about doing a little future discussion about some of the more subtle points that are kind of mentioned by Mao in passing, doing a little deep dive on those. Yeah, and it's just such an such an irony that Mao is talking about perceptual knowledge and going into rational knowledge. But people who uh you know, first time reading these this text just stays in the perceptual knowledge of understanding this text. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mao is like, yeah, yeah. Mao is like, no, we need to really think through these things and and eventually put it into practice and develop even further. Uh, so there's an irony here within the text and people people reading the text. Yeah. So one of the things I mentioned, but just is worth diving into a little bit further, is this point that you know all knowledge is grounded in practice which sounds obvious and I think we can agree with it, but then it's easy to kind of fall into one form or another of denying that. And if people have seen how Yukon moves the mountains, there's an excellent scene in the subsection of it, the generator factory, where the workers there are discussing and debating the excellent text by Engels, anti-during. And they're discussing this question of a priori ideas, of ideas which are supposedly innate in the mind. And you know, they're having debate over it. Some workers in a socialist society are saying, well, maybe there are some ideas that are innate in the mind. Just a quick note, How Yukong Moved the Mountains is a series of 12 documentary films about the great proletarian cultural revolution in China. It was filmed between 1972 and 1974 and released in France in 1976. 
The film focuses on ordinary people spread over a wide geographic area, many of whom were living and working in collectives. And the filmmakers recorded a unique moment in history and also captured some of the more enduring aspects of Chinese culture. The episode, The Generator Factory, is one of the 12 films produced. It focuses on the proletariat working in factories producing generators. The following audio clip is the particular scene we just mentioned, where a group of workers debate idealism and materialism of a priori ideas. If you want to watch the documentary, there's a link in the show notes. This specific debate starts around the one hour and 21 minute mark. In order to build socialism, and later on communism, you need material security. But what you need most is to develop a communist consciousness. If we don't study politics, Marx and Lenin, how can we raise people's political consciousness? Building socialism and communism would be impossible. So one of the important functions of the party in the factory is to organize political study classes for workers and cadres. One might think that this would slow down production, but in fact, it increases it. The study of Marxism and Leninism and the understanding of materialism enables the workers to put their ideas into practice. We don't have to rely on money or threats to motivate the workers. We count on Marxism-Leninism. That's the difference between capitalist factories and ours. It increases production rather than slowing it down. I'd like to understand why you study 19th century philosophy. You mean the study of Engels' anti-During. The anti-During is one of the most important classical works of Marxism-Leninism. Although it was written in relation to a particular struggle between Marxism and opportunism in the 19th century, it's still valid. We study the anti-During today to help us understand the meaning of materialism and of idealism. An impulsive reaction is very similar to a false intuitive thought. What is an impulsive reaction? What does intuitive thought mean? In the third chapter, Engels concentrated on denouncing and condemning During's a priorism. During taught and defended a priorism, claiming that principles exist prior to objects. During maintains that thought is a framework. According to him, the unity of one's thought creates the unity of being. For During, the relationship is that the unity of thought comes first and that of being comes after. Let's say I want to go somewhere. I have to take a certain route. But I have a false intuition. I go in the opposite direction. I never arrive. 
We always act according to our thoughts. That's how I see it. If not, we'd be acting blindly. How can that be denied? What commands action, if not thought? First we have a concept in our head, then we act. You're wrong. If the concept comes first, that means thought. Matter exists objectively. It doesn't depend on man's will. It can never be created by will alone. Lao Li just said that he wanted to go east, but he went west because of a false intuitive thought. That's why he was wrong. And yet both east and west exist objectively. The problem is knowing if there are intuitive thoughts, not whether they are right or wrong. From a materialist point of view, we must not overemphasize intuitive thoughts. These thoughts may seem to jump to mind in a matter of seconds, as part of a process. But in reality, they are necessary conclusions. They are determined after long periods of practical experience or after careful reflection. They are founded objectively after a long accumulation. Form and reality always have foundations. That's the first point. The second is, as impostors like Liu Xiaoxi claimed, that thought explains everything, that everything is decided and created by thought. They fell completely into idealistic a apriorism. Let's take an example. The recent problem we had with the double cooling turbo generator. There were two different points of view. Take it apart and start all over again, which would have kept us from finishing on time, or not take it apart and install an insulator. Taking it apart would have kept us from getting the job done, but installing an insulator was just what we needed. That proves that this intuitive thought was correct. But where does this thought come from? Where did it come from when the decision was made? Was it innate? Or did it spring right out of practical experience, from acquired knowledge? The question is, where did this thought come from? It's the result of accumulated experience. So it didn't just drop out of the sky. But intuitive thoughts do exist. If Lao Yu told us, take the rotor apart, wouldn't that be a sudden intuitive thought? Take it apart? If he told us to do it, we would. Because Lao Yu acts on the basis of his own experience, otherwise we wouldn't do it. That idea should be criticized. A sudden intuitive thought, in my opinion, is actually a concept. The question is, where does this concept come from? If we just take things literally, we can accept the concept of wrong or right intuitive thoughts. First they study in small groups. Then all the groups meet together in a general assembly to present and discuss their work. 
These workers come from families that were illiterate just 30 years ago. Today they've begun to reflect on philosophical issues which are considered too important to be left in the hands of a few specialists. Mao Tse-Tung says, philosophy must liberate itself from the lecture halls. It must enter into each person's life. And before we just jump to the conclusion, oh, these are backwards workers who don't get it, I think it's important to see that there's some subtlety. It's not always obvious how the ideas which seem innate and obvious and common sense to us are developed uh, over actually a long period of practical experience. And if anyone's ever spent time around a young kid, it's actually kind of obvious how this happens because you can see a young kid like just be fascinated by picking something up and like putting it away. You know, just that process, there's really a lot of repetition of moving through that, observing it over and over and over again to then eventually solidify the basis of like, okay, you know, this book can fit there in the shelf. Something that seems obvious and empirical and innate to us. and uh, or, or just stacking items or putting them in a line on the ground. Like these are very big developments in a toddler's mind. Exactly. And you can see it right there, the development of rational knowledge, which then eventually to us in retrospect after 20 years or 30 years, like, oh, yeah, that's just innate. I just you just knew that from the beginning. No, you didn't. You had to learn through experience and people teaching you and through repetition. Um, and there's a whole series of schools of thought that deny this various forms of idealism. Uh, and the term a priori uh, is really in, in particular, I mean, it's used before, but in terms of bourgeois philosophy, it's really popularized by the kind of prime example of an early bourgeois philosopher, Immanuel Kant, who in his writing, you know, basically assumed that we could never really know about objective reality, about things in themselves. And so then kind of focused on, well, what do we know about our own knowledge? And in order to, if you deny there's any real objective basis for a knowledge, you have to argue that certain ideas are already innate in the mind and other ideas are built off of them. Uh, which is, of course, a form of idealism, grounding things principally in the mind and not objective reality. Um, but again, even while explicitly rejecting that, it's easy to fall into elements of assuming that that's the case. And the example with like things like that seem obvious to us that a toddler has to learn, it's a good way to think about it. Um, and if just listeners haven't seen that debate in the Generator Factory, I'd, I'd really highly recommend watching it. That whole, all of How You Come with the Mountains is so great. But that debate in particular can really help to clarify a little bit more about this topic of a priori ideas for those who want to dive into it. All right. I want to talk about a problem that is uh, very huge and significant in U.S. society because we are currently in a society dominated by uh, one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful ruling class of the world. And uh, I mean, with their power at such high levels, uh, the ideology that they push out to the rest of the masses is pretty powerful as well. One of those ideas that they always push out is subjective subjectivity, liberalism, individualism. You know, we see this growing up in classrooms. We see this in, in, in larger society. What's your opinion of this? Right. And like we get a bunch of opinions from people and like there's no objective result from these things. It's just, well, you have a right to think whatever you want. Um, and I think this text definitely helps to address that problem. But to truly understand what Mao is talking about here, I think we can talk a little bit about this aspect. So let me read a quote and get you to respond to it. 
Mao says in On Practice, quote, the truth of any knowledge or theory is determined not by subjective feelings, but by objective results in social practice. Only social practice can be the criterion of truth. The standpoint of practice is the primary and basic standpoint in the dialectical materialist theory of knowledge, end quote. Can you uh, give some responses to this quote? Yeah, I think this is is such an important point. And, you know, it's an incredible failure of the U.S. left and the kind of the abdication of the U.S. left to kind of petty bourgeois moralism and really bourgeois theories, especially postmodernism, that so much of the U.S. left has effectively given up on the idea of objective reality. And this has kind of carved out the space for right-wing ideologues and conservatives like Ben Shapiro to say like, oh, facts don't care about your feelings and claim that they of all people are standing on the side of truth and the side of objective reality. When I think Malcolm had it right when he said truth is on the side of the oppressed. Now, the U.S. ruling class has done a whole bunch of things to promote postmodernism. People may be familiar with the CIA's efforts through things like the Congress for Cultural Freedom, uh, which through which they promoted all sorts of postmodernism within the U.S. Academy and abroad in dozens of different languages, um, translating a whole bunch of postmodern thinkers, especially some of the, the French authors who kind of gave up on revolution in the 70s and kind of got into this whole question of kind of there's no reality, who can say anything, truth and objective reality are oppressive, all this nonsense. Um, and, and there's some great articles out there, for example, about how the CIA translated Foucault into English and promoted him and so on. Um, but, you know, I think Mao is just cuts through this nonsense. Like we don't, we, and we shouldn't surrender the idea that there's an objective reality to the conservatives, to the right wing. No, that, that that's a stance that we take firmly as dialectical materialists and that our knowledge is based on that objective reality um, and not on people's, you know, subjective whims or perspective. Of course, people have different perspectives, but the question is what really exists? What's actually out there? And how do we understand that reality so as to transform it in a revolutionary fashion? And, you know, our ideas can correspond to that reality more or less. And if they correspond to it less or not at all, then there's are incorrect ideas. Those are ideas which do not, you know, um, accurately reflect reality. If we can't verify the correctness of those ideas in practice, then, um, then they're wrong. And we have to be unequivocal about that. We can't see ground to the postmodernists. This doesn't mean just saying, oh, people's feelings don't matter or, you know, all the kind of nonsense things people say, uh, you know, and these like right-wing influencers put out. But it, it does mean being unambiguous that this postmodern stuff is a reactionary and ruling class theory, uh, even if it's opposed by other reactionary ruling class theorists who try to promote a common sense conservatism as an supposed antidote to this, which of course, they're just kind of two sides of the same coin. Um, as Mao puts it, Marxists hold that man's social practice alone is the criterion of the truth of his knowledge of the external world. And postmodernism, you know, it's easy to refute this idea, you know, this idea of irreducible cultural particularity where there's one truth in this culture and another truth in that culture. And, you know, people use this to justify all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, but look, we're talking right now on computers. We can see a clear refutation of this whole ideology just based on the fact that computers exist and work. Now, if there was just someone happened to accidentally create a computer one time and we could never replicate it, then maybe postmodernists would have something. But the fact that 
literally probably millions of people were involved in the production, if not more, maybe hundreds of millions and all the different component parts of this computer from like the oil to make the plastics, the microchips, the gold mining, the cobalt, the lithium, the computer programming, the assembly, every different aspect of it. You know, when you take all of them and you look together, it's a huge, huge number of people, none of most of whom never spoke to each other, don't even know each other's names, don't speak the same languages, aren't from the same countries, have different cultures. But nonetheless, it was possible, even under this backwards and reactionary system that we live under, capitalism, to bring those people together in a social division of labor to create computers on a huge scale, millions of computers every year, however many are made, um, and phones and so on, that work pretty reliably. And of course, there's planned obsolescence, and of course, there's glitches and errors. That doesn't refute the fact that clearly the correctness of the theories of how to make computers and semiconductors and microprocessors and lithium ion batteries and circuit boards are repeatedly proven in practice and that those ideas are correct and true and, and that people despite coming from numerous different backgrounds can all verify them in practice and, and if i sound a bit polemical it, it's just because this idea that there's no reality is so obviously absurd so clearly uh falsifiable, that it can be a bit frustrating for those of us in the US left who have had to battle this idea over and over again, uh, and kind of point out such simple counterexamples. But it's a necessary struggle we have to wage. Because of course, there's the diehard postmodernists out there. And we're not going to win them over. But there's a whole bunch of activists in the US left who can be won over, if not to MLM, at least to better positions. Uh, and we need to clarify to them why postmodernism is wrong. And this text is a real antidote to all this malaise. Yeah, it's a big issue, too, because this is a, a like a minority versus majority type of issue where in mainstream society, postmodernism is just everywhere, right? So a lot of people think if this is the majority way of thinking, it could be right. Even in the revisionist Marxist world, the revisionists are the majority. So people say, oh, this is correct. Uh, but uh all correct ideas start as a minority position <laughs> until it's went over to the majority. And usually when it does went over to the majority, something significantly changes in their thinking. Um, so, I mean, this is a great point about what you said about postmodernism and, and really debunking it through like these material things that require a certain type of science and technology to continually be rebuilt over and over and on larger mass scales right but i think the issue is when it comes to a social application uh people think that postmodernism is okay at that point maybe not with maybe not with computers but if we change our language we can change the rest of the world right so these new ideas that are uh challenging these older ideas that have already been proven i think you know I, I was just thinking of like judith butler and promoting the idea of like changing language in order to change reality which i think is a form of postmodernism that's at play that is very big on the so-called left in u.s society today um could you talk a little bit about like applying this to social spaces social theories uh social change as compared to what you were saying, like these physical, more physical components of like computers and cell phones and things like that. First, I'll just provide a little bit of background on the real rise of postmodernism. This is only one aspect of it, but it's worth noting. 
some of the kind of forerunners of postmodern theory were renegades from the communist movement, and in particular in France, where there was a group, the gauche proletariat, the left proletariat that formed in the wake of May 68 that was inspired by the Cultural Revolution, but which had many issues. And a number of the leaders of that movement, when the uh, movement declined, the, the group, I think, always tended towards ultra leftism, became renegades in the 70s when the movement declined. Uh, people such as Andre Glucksmann, Bernard-Henri Lévy, and they wrote a series of books basically arguing that it's Western liberal democracy versus totalitarianism. And that any form of thought that aims to talk about universality is the same as fascism, is the same as Stalinism and all this nonsense, they would say, you know. And people like Foucault, who had been a relatively progressive academic doing some kind of historical research that was flawed, but had some worth, kind of also went in this direction and just became total postmodernists. You know, if you listen to the Foucault-Chomsky debate, for example, at that time, he upholds the dictatorship of the proletariat, despite all of his other confusions. Later on, he abandons that and talks about the care of the self and all this all this stuff. People have read Foucault's later works. Um, there's not so much great stuff there, so I don't blame you if you haven't had to slog through that. Um, and the CIA really latches onto this and starts to promote it. And they explicitly say that promoting this stuff will weaken people's interest in Marxism and weaken the ability of movements of people to resist the kind of maneuvers and machinations, that's not how they put it, but that's basically how they put it, of U.S. corporations and the U.S. government. Um, they're very open about it. Now, many people who promote postmodernism, of course, are not literal pawns for the CIA, but are kind of um, useful idiots, so to speak. Uh, we can often use bourgeois sources to debunk bourgeois ideas. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Different cases. Yeah. And, and these useful idiots for U.S. imperialism and for imperialist ideology kind of promote all sorts of confusion in the social sciences. Um, often their basic operation is to say that, you know, because knowledge is not a 100% perfect reflection of reality, we can't know anything. Or to kind of point out that things aren't a rigid opposition, like a non-dialectical two of static opposition between two different things, and therefore say, so the lines are blurred, so therefore there's no ability to say anything is anything. And, you know, the basic solution to this is dialectics. For example, in, in anti-During, Engels notes that, okay, you know, there's a dialectical relationship between life and death. It's hard to say exactly the precise point at which an organism dies, right? Because there's so many different processes, heartbeat, cellular respiration, blood flow, breathing, et cetera, in the case of humans. Um, when exactly is the moment of death? Hard to say, because, you know, for example, someone can be technically dead, their heart stopped beating, but then you can put an EKG on them, boop, bring them back to life. But does that mean there's no difference between life and death? No, obviously not. There's a big difference between being alive and dead. And anyone who has any real intellectual integrity will acknowledge that. Um, and so a lot of what happens in the social sciences uh, is people kind of postmodernists they draw on this fact that it's hard to make an exact and precise line of demarcation, especially if you see lines of demarcation rigidly and metaphysically, and you see kind of things not as a unity of opposite, but as static and separate and unchanging categories. And I think we'll dive into this topic a little bit more in a future episode on, on contradiction that we've been talking about. But um, based on the fact that things aren't static, they conclude there's no ability to differentiate between anything. 
And it's a sleight of hand. It's, it's a logical fallacy to make that argument because it does not at all follow that um, just because things are static or just because we don't know everything, that therefore we don't know anything. And an essential aspect of the Marxist view of, of, of knowledge is, is what Engels talks about in one of his letters to Conrad Schmidt from 1895, I'm sorry. And he says that you know, the, the Marxist understanding, the dialectical materialist understanding of knowledge is that of asymptotic reflection. Now, an asymptote is when you approach the, the, the number, but never quite reach it. You know, like if you see a graph and it's like a line, like a curved line approaching the number one, but not quite reaching it. You know, you take it out to infinity, eventually it reaches one. And his point is that our concepts come closer and closer to reflecting the objective reality, but always there's a little bit more of reality that we can discover and, and, and understand and, and get closer to. Um, and the fact that our concepts are not a perfect reflection of reality, it no means, by no means means that our concepts are not correct. It's a question of further refining them. Um, and there's a lot more to say on this topic, um, but hopefully that that at least clarifies to some degree some of the basic operations that postmodern thinkers use to dismiss the ability of uh, of Marxism or anything to understand social reality. Yeah, no, it's good because there's the physical sciences and the social sciences, and uh, they're both science and they're both in uh, following the laws of nature in, in every aspect. But I think that you answered really well my question about like how people can maybe apply one aspect, say that postmodernism can't really be applied to the physical sciences, but can be applied to social science. And, it's, and I think what you're saying is like, that's completely wrong. It doesn't make it really just doesn't make any sense. If you if we have any, as you said, an in intellectual integrity, uh, that that idea really falls on its face. Well, let me just say one last thing before we do, because you made an excellent point, just, and I want to highlight this, is that most postmodern thinkers, some will deny there's any objective reality. Sometimes Judith Butler denies this. And as you mentioned, she talks about these speech acts and says everything's just an act and we just create the reality um, by talking. And, but they kind of often equivocate. Even, even Judith Butler kind of says, okay, there's the realm of language games and there's the realm of, of reality. And we can't, like, physical reality, we don't really know what the relationship is, and we can't ever reach that. It's kind of like Kantian view of maybe there's a real reality out there, maybe there's not, we can't ever say. And this is actually more common in a sense, and especially amongst activists in the U.S. left, than outright denying that there's an objective reality, although sometimes they do would even say it's oppressive to say there's an objective reality, they'll eclectically hold on the one hand that there's an objective reality, as you put it, when it comes to hard sciences. And on the other hand, any sort of social matter is just a matter of perspective. And this sort of eclecticism, really from the birth of postmodernism, has been a foundational feature. And if we go back, for example, to Lenin's text, which is just a fantastic uh, text on philosophy, materialism and imperial criticism, his main critique of the imperial criticists of people like Bogdanov and others in the Russian movement who had kind of renounced Marxist philosophy while claiming to uphold Marxist philosophy is precisely this. 
that they're eclectics, that on the one hand, sometimes they're materialist, acknowledging there's a reality, acknowledging the relationship between thinking and being in a materialist fashion. And on the other hand, at other times, often just one paragraph later in their same book, they take an idealist view. And this is the norm amongst postmoderns. And, and, and it's true amongst the academics and, and the, the theoreticians, but it's also especially true in the activist circles and in the US left, where people are not so developed, you know, theoretically, they're not like committed, like Judith Butlerites, they, they wouldn't recite all of her theory, but they've kind of absorbed a little bit of it, maybe from her reading, maybe from online circles, and they kind of mix and match these things. And as Marxists, we need to do a hell of a lot better than that. Yep, completely agree. And it's again, there's the irony here of activists who feel like they have been enlightened and they go against capitalism and against the bourgeoisie and the ruling class, yet they're still using the ideas that the bourgeois class has conditioned them to believe. <laughs> so there's there's actually no breaking away from it. Okay, let's move on to the next point, I think. Uh, we've said enough here. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, there's a lot more. We could do a whole episode on postmodernism. but uh, Exactly, there's so much there. Yeah, the focus today is really, you know, what's the Marxist theory? In a sense, this will be our first in-depth point on the theory itself in, in this text. This is about theory and practice and, and the fact that there are a unity of opposites. As we've already mentioned, you know, the correctness of a theory is only verifiable through practice. And the particular form of practice relates to the particular theory in question. And we can start with just a simple example. I think that that can make it easy for us to think about this and, and break it down. Then we'll move to a more complicated one. And we'll quickly see that the more complicated situation, the more complicated the theory, the more challenging, not only testing it in practices, but examining the results of that practice and, and analyzing them. And that sounds obvious, but then I think it's easy to, to actually assume that it's not the case and that it's always simple. So let's start with our simple example first, and we'll get there. So let's imagine a situation where there's only two outcomes to our, our, uh, our experiment. So let's say, you know, it's the winter, you're in a northern state in the United States, and you're going to walk across a frozen pond. You want to. Um, it's a shortcut. And you want to, you have a theory that you can walk across the pond. And so you're going to test this theory in practice to see if your idea that you can walk across the pond is correct or incorrect. Uh, and so what do you do? Well, you maybe throw a rock on the pond or you start to walk a little bit or you kind of push down with your foot or stomp on it to see if the ice is thick enough. And you'll either walk safely across or you won't. Hopefully you don't actually fall in, but that's a possibility if you have an incorrect idea and you go for the walk and fall in. Um, and so we have these two outcomes and uh, it's fairly straightforward and obvious and empirically simple. Well, we have the postmodernists who, right before stepping onto the lake, will be this this ice will hold, this ice will hold, this ice will hold, <laughs> and believe that them believing that and saying that will help help keep the ice intact. Or maybe there's no ice; it's all in my head. Or who's to say if ice in a different culture would be mean something different? Yeah, pretty <laughs> silly. But yeah, so you know, either you you walk on the ice and you make it across, or the ice breaks and you fall through, or or you decide not to walk across because it cracks. And so it's a fairly simple example, and the outcome is immediately empirically obvious. The theory was correct, and you walk, the theory is incorrect, and you fall through, or you don't walk because the ice breaks. 
But now let's just deal with a more complicated example, because I think we'll see as soon as we get into this example, that a lot more possibilities arise in dealing with something more complicated, something where the results are somewhat less obvious and the outcomes are less obvious. And we can't assume that every instance we come across where we're testing a theory in practice is going to be so simple as this ICE example. So let's say, talk about making revolution. Um, in making revolution, obviously the relationship between theory is more and practice is more complicated. You know, on a simple level, this is just because there are so many different variables to test and examine and so many different things to test in practice in a revolution. And in other words, the scope of practical activity in making revolution is very wide. It's going to involve a whole diverse series of struggles, of efforts, uh, and we'll have to be able to assess all of them and how they relate to each other. So, for example, the Bolsheviks organized unions, they led strikes, they had huge street protests, they organized in the army, they did parliamentary activity to expose the rot that was the Tsarist Duma, uh, they organized against the famines, uh, they fought against pogroms, and so much more. And, and, and all aspects of these different forms of the class struggle and rev revolutionary activity were tested and practiced and refined. The Bolsheviks developed their secrecy technique, their agitational abilities, uh, the skills at making newspapers and smuggling them into Russia, etc. Uh, and one might incorrectly think, just at first looking at this, that, well, we can examine each of these efforts in total isolation. Making a newspaper, what worked, what didn't work, let's just examine that in isolation from every other form of revolutionary activity. And of course, on some level, we can examine it in isolation. But in order to understand what worked and what didn't work about making that paper, we need to examine a whole bunch of other aspects of revolutionary activity. So let's say, for example, in making Iskra or Pravda or one of the papers that the Bolsheviks made, um, the party just examined the question of the articles that were written in the paper. And they said, okay, well, these articles didn't lead to uh, an increase in, you know, agitation uh, and, and militancy amongst the workers. So therefore the articles themselves were wrong or, or, or failure. Like we didn't have, we had a theory about what to agitate around in our articles and what to write propaganda around. And that wasn't received by the workers. And that didn't lead to an, an upsurge in revolutionary activity. So therefore the problem was right in the articles. But what if there was problems actually in smuggling enough of them in in a timely fashion, so they were late? Or what if there was problems in the party's ability to explain the content of the articles and to hold study groups? Or what if there was a problem not in the writing of these articles, but in the focus of the topic that they selected to agitate around? Or what if some other events happened in the process that uh, of shipment that led to actually a new focus for the struggle? And, and so on. There could be a million different reasons. And so we can see how, you know, all these forms of revolutionary activity are actually in a complex interrelation with each other. And they mutually influence and determine each other in a very complicated process that ultimately is, you know, the process of making revolution or, or not if you fail. And so from this, it should be clear that at a certain point, really, Quantity transforms into quality when it comes to complexity. Uh, we're dealing with a, not just a quantitative level of greater complexity than our ICE example, but a whole qualitatively different type of examining the relationship between theory and practice. When we're looking at the scope of an organization of, say, thousands of members, or at a certain point, 
hundreds of thousands of members in the case of the Bolshevik party. It's just a, a hell of a lot more complicated. And, and it's not just adding one or two more variables. It's a whole different thing to examine how things relate to each other. And the party, you know, it needs to become skilled at all these different aspects of revolutionary work and training and educating new cadre on how to do these well. Uh, but they also need to closely analyze, and Bolsheviks need to, needed to do this, we need to do this in our own situation, to closely analyze society in which we live, as well as the international situation, and test our theories about that situation and practice. And based on all of this, it's also necessary to deploy forces and relate different struggles and activities together well, based on our analysis of the national situation, as well as based on our own internal assessment of our forces and their understanding of shifting sentiments of the masses and understanding of the most favorable places to be organizing, both in the short term and in light of broader strategic vision for building up the revolutionary movement and so on. So maybe based on all of that, listeners now have a sense of just how complicated it is to evaluate the testing of theories and practice in the course of making a revolution. And that's not to say it's impossible, not at all. It is entirely possible and the victory of the Bolshevik revolution, the Chinese revolution testified to this fact. But the problem is, and the problem really arises and is acute, I think right now in the United States left and more broadly, when we have a simplified and mechanical understanding of how to assess the correctness or incorrectness of our ideas and, and you know, based on a simplified reading of on practice, uh, it's just so much more complicated than our simple example of the pond. And uh, there's a lot that goes into breaking down, okay, to go back to our example of the paper, you know, what was the main factor that led to the problems in this case of maybe an issue that didn't have the reception amongst the masses that there was hope for? What was the secondary factors? How do we examine these and how they interrelate to each other? Maybe there were some problems in an article or two that we thought would be promising, or that the Bolsheviks thought would be promising. Maybe there was a problem in the party's educational structure to train up cadres to agitate around those articles. And that was why they had difficulties in explaining the articles to the workers and so on. Uh, and I'll say this, you know, there's another layer of complexity too. Because, you know, if we look at, the Chinese Revolution and, and the defeats that the party faced in 1927, with the setbacks that followed the revolution there, when so many of the party's members were massacred, when Chiang Kai-shek took over leadership of, of the Kuomintang, which he'd done slightly before then, but worked with the imperialists to crush the 1927 revolution, uh, they had to, Mao and others in the Chinese Communist Party had to not only analyze what was correct and incorrect about this line of focusing on urban insurrections. But they also then, based on that analysis and their analysis of Chinese society, had to go a step further and develop a new strategy for making revolution in China. So it's not just what did we do right and what did we do wrong, but based on that and what we know about our society, what's a way forward? A new way forward even, potentially. And so we can see just how complicated this relationship between theory and practice really is. Yeah, so if I don't know if listeners are are, are putting two and two together, but it, this all goes back to the very beginning of what we were talking about dogmatism, and I think people can understand a very simple idea of like walking across the pond, but then they take that idea, that simplification, and dogmatically apply it to these very complex processes, um, and and 
and the point of this these complex processes is that things are always going to be changing and we have to constantly assess and reassess and assess and reassess and this is a skill that has to be developed through practice this is something that you have to be in it you have to be really in it to understand it um you have to be very dedicated to understand it you know understanding the complexities of any society is is a lot of work and you and not one person can do it we need a group of people to do it hence an organization or a party that is very, taking this up very seriously and again it goes back to like avoiding a dogmatic application of this understanding this assessment and reassessment process one thing things could change in a day things could take a month or a year to change it depends on the situation what's the quote by lenin uh there there are uh decades where nothing happened and there are like weeks where decades happen um and so how do we know this we have to constantly pay attention put our ideas into practice test them revise them uh, assess the new situation out of that reassess it again over and over and it's a constant process of change right as the saying goes the only constant in this world is change so why are we uh and i'm even talking to my old self like why why was i trying to apply these uh very simple ideas and dogmatically applying them to these complex uh situations um and i think there's a urge within many of us here in this society where we just really want to understand but we just don't have the skill set or the theoretical backing to actually understand a current condition and so we kind of revert our default because we've been conditioned by the bourgeois class here our default is to become dogmatic and to promote dogmatism without even knowing that it's dogmatism so that's what i'm taking away from this lesson from you which i think is very helpful even in my own understanding i'm sure it's got to be helpful for people who are listening yeah i think that's well said and in particular i just want to hone in on what you said about really being in the mix of it because like i said it can seem so simple you fall through the ice or you don't in a simple example but when it comes to complicated things and, and most things we're doing in life especially in making revolution even organizing on a basic level locally are going to be complicated it's not obvious what the factors are that led to a success or a failure and every effort is always a mix of success and failure and so Mao really talks about this process in making the leap from perceptual knowledge to rational knowledge of furrowing our brow and thinking it over and when we're assessing the results of our practice we're making the leap from perceptual to rational knowledge we're really looking at okay, what worked what didn't work let's sum this up how do we evaluate this how do we evaluate that and it's not just an individual process if we're organizing it's a collective process and there's a lot of struggle that goes into it uh and there's so much you know not just of a, a dogmatic reading oh that's a big part of it but a a form of pragmatism that exists in, in the U.S society which in a kind of it's funny but there's often like dogmatic pragmatism it affects the Maoist movements we see this a lot people like show us the work they're doing the work that's what matters you know but pragmatism is really kind of an idea well if it gets the results it's good but obviously an approach that on the one hand gets the results in the short term may in the long term undermine our ability to get results so we could have a, an approach initially in organizing that brings the people together to, to protest and then that very same approach could lead to deep problems down the road say kind of convincing people 
and playing into various forms of petty bourgeois ideology about getting yours or something like that, that could undermine our very success. Uh, and just to note a little bit about pragmatism, you know, there are overall, it's, I think, a negative and kind of uh, approach and, and uh, philosophy in the U.S., kind of the idea of not really engaging so deeply with the theory, kind of looking for the results and what's immediately empirically obvious. Um, but there is a divided nature to it in the sense that some people who take on a pragmatic attitude do have kind of a progressive aspect to some anti-intellectualism because there's so much, you know, just nonsense and, and bullshit in the academy with all this postmodernism and kind of like scholarly gatekeeping that people reasonably are fed up with it. Like, if you can't explain it to me clearly, then I'm just going to assume what I, what you see is what you get. Um, which of course, as we know, based on a, a, a real understanding of Marxism, the empirical layer of reality, the most obvious surface level stuff is not what you get. There's deeper processes at play. Um, but all that is to say, people are kind of often drawn to pragmatism because of their reasonable frustrate, frustration and outrage at just the absurdity of U.S. academic culture and postmodernism. But even before that, kind of, uh, kind of the, as you put it, like the philosophers in the ivory towers and so on, who are very disconnected from reality. I want to really, I, I have a question, but let me just touch on this pragmatism. It's it's a very U.S. centric way of thinking, and it basically covers the idea of of the means and the ends. Does the pragmatism says it doesn't matter what the means are. Let's just get to the end. You know, if we want to drive somewhere, let's just get from point A to point B. I don't care how you get there. Let's just do it the fastest way. But some people want to enjoy the ride. You know, <laughs> they want to look at look at what's what is happening between point A and point B? So pragmatism is like, let's just get to point B. I don't care how you do it. Just get the results. Now, the question is, is it correct to say that pragmatism arose with the development of U.S. imperialism? From what I've read from, I, and I don't know too much about this, but my idea is that pragmatism really arose as U.S. imperialism start, started to gain way, specifically in the late 1800s, early uh, 1900s. I don't know if it existed too much before then, but uh, could you give a brief, really just a brief background about like pragmatism, how it developed in the U.S. and like kind of explain this is why it is so prevalent in our society today? Yeah, well, really the early pragmatists, exactly as you said, it was late 19th century, Charles Sanders Pierce, uh, Dewey of the Dewey Decimal System and others who kind of promoted, you know, and I think you gave a good summary of it. Uh, and this ideology kind of became very useful for the U.S. ruling class in, in general to justify its own actions. Uh, and and uh, I think it's correctly understood as a imperialist ideology, ultimately, that really, you know, justifies, oh, might makes right because you get results and so on. Um and it also really encourages people to not look beyond the surface because the assumption is what's immediately obvious is what's true in a sense. Um, but we know from, you know, even this text that Mao says rational knowledge is not just the external relations, the surface level dynamics, but it's a grasping of the internal relations of an object and the internal relations between different objects and phenomena. And those aren't pra practically obvious. Like if you look at, capital what marx writes about the commodity is that you know the value contained in the commodity 
is not contained in a single atom of the commodity. That is to say that it's it's about the role that the commodity plays socially. And I don't want to do a deep dive on political economy right now, but all that is to say, you know, if you look at a cup of coffee, you're not going to see, no matter how hard you look at it, the value form. You have to do a much deeper level analysis and, and, and effectively pragmatism encourages people to turn away from that. And just one last thing to say on pragmatism. You know, Lenin talks about it a bit in materialism and imperial criticism. And, and he basically notes that on the one hand, you know, this American philosophy of pragmatism, which was kind of fairly new in, in that day, it does reject, you know, idealism um, in the sense of like religious thinking. But on the other hand, it also rejects materialism and basically argues for an kind of empiricist approach to reality. He, he notes it's very closely related to logical positivism, which is kind of an eclectic and almost pre-postmodern form of thinking, uh, which underlines a lot of the thinking of the uh, imperial criticists. And I won't dive into that too deeply, um, but basically this is all just to note that pragmatism, Lenin saw it very much as closely related to the eclectic trends that were rising in the Russian Marxist movement, that the pragmatism had a real influence on them, and that it was, although nominally against idealist philosophy, ultimately really smuggled in a rejection of materialism and tried, tried to take like a third path, so to speak, between materialism and idealism. And he saw it, I think, correctly as, as a deeply reactionary form of philosophy. Yeah, that's a great point. I'm glad you brought uh, Lenin's take on that. Yeah, it's crazy how pragmatism was sweeping into the Russian Marxists, specifically Marxist circles. But um, let's move on to the next point. And this next point is kind of tied to somewhat of an episode that we did earlier on the on on this podcast uh, where we had a former member of Red Guards USA or CRCP USA come on and talk about their experiences so if people want more uh background on that that's a good episode to check out but i feel like this issue that we're talking about pragmatism was a common issue with uh we could call it part of the u.s maoist movement but really it was th these red guards usa folks um i mean among others but they essentially justified their backwards political lines and political positions based on the claim that they had advanced their practical work. Um, I think you know a little bit about this, so I'm going to ask you if you can talk about how this pragmatism has even infiltrated in uh, this section of the U.S. Maoist history in recent years. And for those who are unaware, the precursor to MCU, the uh, mass proletariat, the erstwhile mass proletariat, wrote a series of documents. We wrote a series of documents in polemics with the Red Guards. And some of these were including the Red Guards Austin is not an MLM organization. Uh, and then once again on Red Guards Austin. Um, and also we had a polemic with them on the question of protracted people's war. And we were involved in a number of public debates. And I mean, I hesitate. Our, our point was they're not really Maoists, but they justified and had an influence. They justified their position and had an influence on the U.S. Maoist movement by basically claiming that they had the most advanced practice. When in fact, a lot of what they were doing was, you know, charity work, handing out some free stuff along with, you know, a few of their pamphlets. Um, 
and then having these street protests, which had very little to no base amongst the local masses, but uh, which kind of they were able to make it look as if they were leading big protests that seemed militant and so on. And and this is really tied into this stuff with pragmatism and with the empiricist deviation more broadly, you know, of saying, okay, well, it seems to be getting results, even if a deeper investigation reveals that there's not so many results, and therefore that's correct. When in fact, based on the lessons of revolutionary Marxism, of Maoism, it was clear that the Red Guards and then later the CRCP USA did not have a correct approach. We're not really developing a Maoist movement. We're not having significant successes, even if they could post a few photos online. Um, and uh, that, you know, this really, this view that, oh, they're getting the results, they're doing the work, it misled a lot of people. And I think many people were, were burned by this organization because they subscribed to that approach. And I, I know the, the leadership was quite rotten, um, but I think a lot of good people who, you know, could have otherwise done a lot ended up getting pulled in in one way or another to this, or maybe even if not getting involved, pin their hopes in this group. Uh, and, and I think that's they're not necessarily their own fault. You know, there's not a clear uh, kind of orienting strong revolutionary movement or organization at present in the US. But I think through a deeper study of Maoism, it becomes abundantly clear that the Red Guards and then later the CRCP USA really was making some fundamental mistakes. And I thought the earlier episode you had on it did a good job in exposing that. This was not just an issue of some bad leaders, but a mistaken political approach overall. Uh, I would say that, you know, it's important just thinking about this problem of empiricism. Um, in the second issue of Red Pages, we published uh, uh, some commentary uh, on a number of documents from the late Cultural Revolution. Which, by the way, I don't think people even know what Red Pages is. Oh, sorry, that's a good point. Red Pages is our publication, publication of the Maoist Communist Union. You can find that on our website and on Band Thought uh, on the page for our group there. Which I will link in the show notes for people who are listening. Awesome. And so we published, there was a number of documents that recently translated. We included those translations, then some of our own commentary. And uh, these documents from the late Cultural Revolution. And in one of these documents, um, Mao noted that in this period in the party's history, in the 30s, and, uh, that the dogmatists were able to spread their poison in the party, in the Chinese society more broadly, by means of the empiricists in the party. That the empiricists were basically won over to supporting the dogmatist line, uh, and that this was a more general problem in the uh, history of the Chinese Communist Party. There weren't so many dogmatists, actually, in the party, uh, but they... Uh, were real diehards, some of them, who couldn't be won over. But a lot of good comrades who made some empiricist errors sometimes were fooled by the dogmatists' seemingly fancy theoretical formulations. And I think this was very much the case with Red Guards. I mean, the leadership was clearly deeply dogmatic and confused. And um, they won a lot of people over and were even able to spread their, their poison through the U.S. left and basically destroy a lot of Maoist groups and crush a lot of people's hope. Uh, because a lot of empiricists kind of looked at what they saw on social media, what they read in some confused documents and thought, okay, well, they're, they're having the results. Um, and uh, as I mentioned before, they've had very little actual support from the masses and certainly very little base amongst the working class uh, outside of, you know, petty bourgeois internet activists and maybe some working class internet activists. They really 
were not so significant. But um, I think that this form of empiricism in the U.S. right now, in effect, is worse because of social media and because of this kind of fixation on images. Uh, and, you know, it could be someone looking at Red Guards Austin or it could be someone looking at Instagram influencer thinking, wow, they're so happy to lead such a fulfilling life. And then, you know, beneath the surface, this Instagram influencer is probably a very hollow person who just spends all their time curating these images to make their life look amazing on social media because they took a picture at a coffee shop or whatever. Um, and, you know, in contrast to this approach, Mao says, fully to reflect the thing in its totality, to reflect its essence, to reflect its inherent laws, it is necessary through the exercise of thought to reconstruct the rich data of sense perception, discarding the dross and selecting the essential, eliminating the false and retaining the true, proceeding from the one to the other and from the outside to the inside. In order to form a system of concepts and theories, it is necessary to make a leap from perceptual to rational knowledge. And this doesn't happen uh, easily. It doesn't happen automatically. It's, it's very, very common and, and easy to fall into empiricism, given our own subjective limitations as individuals, limitations of the influences of our class society. And even Mao, during these uh, late cultural revolution and some of these documents that, that are in red pages, Mao refers to himself and Zhang Qing as partially empiricists with some Marxism. And he's being modest, of course, but he's also speaking about his own inherent limitations. So there's no shame in falling into these mistakes and deviations, provided we're, we're willing to rectify them. But I think the problems that arose with the Red Guards group, uh, you know, they'll rear their heads again. Because if we don't do this sort of deep study, uh, it's all too easy to be taken in by charlatans. And, you know, that was our hope. You know, a number of years ago, when we published a document like Red Guards Austin is not an MLM organization to show via a study of their practice and of their documents, the fact that they were not and really never were a Maoist group um, through a study of the inherent internal contradictions of their group, uh, even just based on what was publicly available. Uh, we thought it was fairly obvious. Um, and I think, you know, this lesson is bigger than just them and bigger than just being deceived by various you know, hucksters and um, weird groups out there. The lesson is also one for us internally in evaluating our own work. As we kind of talked about earlier, we need to be quite dialectical in analyzing the internal reasons for our mistakes and for our successes. Um, and I think that that's really essential uh, and to really where the, the key thing lies as the movement in this country begins to pick back up that we look honestly and squarely at our own successes and failures, lest we kind of fall into forms of empiricism and dogmatism. All right, folks, this is the end of episode one of our supplemental guide to Mao's on practice. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you found this helpful, please send it to a comrade or a friend. It helps to grow the listenership of the show and to spread anti-revisionist ideas within our movement to destroy capitalism. Hey, yo,
I travel across the globe, a damn dream come true. How would you feel if everybody wants a piece of you? The more places I visit, the bigger I get. Soon as I'm in the area, they climbing in debt. It got hard to define me, harder to define me. But if you wanna ride, you find your time as well spent. Hey, yo, even in my days of growth, I'm finding ways to cope. When I expand too fast and on my way, I choke. Self-destructing, but isn't everybody on the bottom line? Seeking worth inside the dollar sign. And I evade control, you can't take half of me. All or nothing gotta take me home. Sometimes I sneak out when I wanna get a peek out. When they then find out, crowds tend to freak out. Not like it's a weak crowd, I could be too demanding when I want it all low, real low, but not abandoned. Goldilocks conditions, couldn't believe. When I turn around, they make the whole culture about me. Needed to breathe, the flicker from the star as it lost for my attention. Till it dies silently. And when my name clicks on your screen, make sure it's spelled with capital C as an obscene. And when my name clicks on your screen, make sure it's spelled with capital C as in the C. From the flint they were rocking So flames started popping How could you lose sight of me? Shit, I'm right there I don't wanna be fetishized Diminished or set aside Second thought that might arise When the weapons start to fly Second that they put down First verse is on top of mine I know that I'm your end goal I don't see no pathway You got best strategy Supported by fan base Forget about what your dreams are Think about what your needs are Stars die slowly But the light you can't just sign away Your eyes are deception Sick of based on ill will When it's about how you feel Baby, I'm the real deal Can't just exchange me Rather that you use me If I'm really valued You know what just the true me Two of two sent to easily seduce When all you gotta ask Is what's the use Do me fast or do me slow Yeah, 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 yeah. Take me to the bank or take me on the go Yeah, 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 yeah. 